0: For me, retirement didn't mean stopping. It meant shifting. But I see
1: the people who are engaged in things that are creative, for example, are way more
2: vital, way more alive. Especially as we age, remain relevant and make a contribution to the world that we want to make and at the same time make money. If I don't do this now, when am I going to do this? This is unretirement
1: a podcast about finding purpose and a paycheck in the second half of life from American public media. I'm Chris Farrow. These days, a lot of us are continuing to work well into our 60s, 70s, even 80s. Some of us change careers late in life and even go back to school. Now, most of us aren't getting BAs or an MBA in our unretirement. We're getting certificates like to be a project manager or a bookkeeper or some kind of certification in the healthcare field. Some of these certificates are worth it, and some of them are not. You want to steer clear of them. And we're going to talk in this episode about how you can decide whether to go for that certificate or not. I was talking to a colleague of mine, Annie Anderson, about this show, and I told her I wanted to talk to someone who had changed careers in their unretirement by getting a certificate. And Annie said, you should meet my mom. Her mom used to be a nanny, but now she's getting certified to be a quilting instructor. I thought, wait, there are enough people who want to learn quilting that you can make money teaching it? Well, yeah, it turns out there are. We found Annie's mom in the command center of her new business, her sewing room. So this is my
2: quilt room. I have all my favorite things in
1: here. Sandra Collis was stitching intricate and colorful pieces of fabric together on her sewing machine.
2: And if I have to go around a lot of curves, you know, you don't want to go... Really want to be spot on with your quarter
1: inch. Or let me try and paint a picture. The room is tidy. It's cheerful because there's a lot of sunlight coming in through a picture window. And there's a large sewing table in the center of the room.
2: You stand over here and you trim it, and you come back and you sew on the next one.
1: Hanging on the walls are photographs of her family, high school graduation pictures of her daughter Annie, and newborn photos of her grandchildren. Now, when she opened a closet door, she revealed a large stash of carefully folded and organized pieces of fabric in every imaginable color.
2: On my fabric, sometimes I just leave these cabinet doors open so I can look at them.
1: On the daybed in the room is one of her quilts. It's not a traditional block quilt you might think of. It's more like a collage of greens, whites, and purples, delicate spikes of fabric. And then as you look closer, and I leaned in, you see flowers cascade across one side. The skill with which this quilt had been made made it clear. Annie's mom had been doing this for a long time.
2: I was widowed when Annie was 10. That's when I started quilting, actually, was when I was widowed. And my sister literally knocked on my door and she said, you can't keep doing this. This is not good for you. You need to get out of the house. You need to learn to do something. You need to get your mind going. I'm going to teach you how to quilt. And she signed me up for a couple classes, brought me over to her house and walked me through it. And it was like, oh, little did we know that she touched off a passion.
1: As I mentioned, Sandra had been a professional nanny. She describes it as a well-paying job for someone like her who doesn't have a college diploma. She loved the work.
2: I had been a nanny for 15 years. And at the last year or so, it was like, my God, grandkids. You know, I want to be with my grandkids. And Annie would call me up and say, can you watch the kids? And I have to go watch somebody else's kids. And then come weekend, you're kind of kitted out, right? You don't want to be kitted out on the only opportunity. You have to go see your grandkids.
1: At age 58, she decided it was time for a change.
2: So I was making these quilts. I was having fun with the women who were making these quilts in these classes. And I decided this is what I want to do. This is really what I want to do. I want to work with women who are hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) And after working with little toddlers all the time, you know, it's like I need some adult interaction.
1: She still needed an income. So her idea was a shift from quilting hobbyist to quilting teacher. Quilting is hot. So is knitting, furniture making, artisan bread craft beer. That's one of my favorite trends. Now, Sandra is tapping into America's rapidly growing craft movement. It's an umbrella term for artisans, designers, tinkerers, and artists. Artisans are marrying an ancient craft with modern technology. In the digital age of flat screens, automation, and algorithms, you know, more people are embracing making things, playing an instrument, actually doing painting, and other DIY projects. And people want to get good at their painting, playing that instrument. So the opportunities are expanding to teach people these skills. Now, Sandra loves a quilting method that really does marry old-fashioned quilting with a modern technology. It lets less experienced sewers create complex quilts in a relatively short period of time. The patterns are designed by a company called Quiltworks.
2: So this is the first quilt. It is called the Amazon Star. It's a uh... Obviously, it's star-shaped that goes out from a center. It's a king-size quilt. um, It's very bright and cheerful colors, purples, yellows, creams. I saw this hanging in a quilt store, and I went right over to the owner, and I said, I have to learn how to make that quilt. And she goes, ah, she goes, well, I can't teach it because you have to be a certified instructor or or a certified store to teach these. She goes, but I'm working on it. So then she became a certified store. So then she taught my sister and I and two other women how to make this class. It was like a nine-month class, once a month for nine months. And I got done making it, and I said, not only do I have to make this quilt, I want to teach other women how to make this quilt. Sandra is
1: a Quilt Works fan. She took classes from other instructors who've been certified by Quilt Works, and she thought they were good teachers. She wondered if she could be a Quilt Works instructor.
0: Then she told me about This certification that she looked at online. So we sat down together and looked it over. And so, yeah, I encouraged her to do it.
1: Sandra's daughter Annie was a good person to consult. Annie's partner has an MBA and she helps Sandra and Annie research Quilt Works. They figured that with travel to Montana for classes plus tuition, it was going to cost Sandra $15,000 to get this certificate. That's a lot to pay for a certificate. The average cost of a certificate program is about $7,000 at a public community college. Of course, some certificates are more expensive and some less. By the way, just as an aside, be really wary of for-profit colleges. They typically charge a lot. But after their research, Annie and her partner and Sandra decided this doesn't look like a scam. And once you pass the smell test, the real key is, will the certificate pay off in an income? Sandra, Annie, and her partner did their research and concluded, yes, it will. So they hashed out a business plan.
2: Oh, the business plan. Well, first it was the name. We had to come up with a name that we were going to like, and then we had to come up with um, finances. How much money was I going to take? I'm willing to invest in this company. How much time was it going to take me to um, earn it back?
1: So what do you think will be the payback period?
2: I'm hoping that the payback will be 18 months. And, uh, and now I've already started teaching, so it might be actually a little bit less than that.
1: Listen to this number from the AARP Public Policy Institute. Post-secondary certificates are growing rapidly to over 1 million in 2010. They now account for 22% of all academic credentials awarded 30 years ago. The figure was 6%. And these degrees are awarded by community colleges, technical colleges, vocational schools, and the like. Industry-based certificates with standards set by large companies like Microsoft and IBM are also growing rapidly. But here's the thing. How do you know a certificate will pay off? How do you avoid a scam? And even if it's a legitimate certificate, how do you know it's worth your time and your money? Costs vary considerably. Reliable, unbiased information. Good luck finding it. And there's more. As we've all learned the hard way, industries boom and bust, and the demand for skills can change unexpectedly. Still, here's a savvy suggestion for researching certificates. Thanks to a conversation I had with career coach Mark Miller, head of a career pivot in Austin, Texas. First, realize that most certificates are typically regional. What is valuable in one metropolitan area or state may not be valuable in another city or state. Go to LinkedIn or some, you know, online job connection board. Search for graduates with the certificate that you're interested in in the area you plan on working. Get in touch with them. Ask for their advice, an informational interview. You know, people will talk to you about their experience. They will impart their knowledge. People want to be helpful. They want to be useful. So what has been their experience with the certificate? Was it worth it to them? Would they do it again knowing what they now know? Also, and this is a twist that I like, search for people your age and see if it worked for them. You want to see if your peer group has benefited from the certificate. So if you do research and questioning along these lines, check things out, check it out with the graduates, I think that will give you some reassurance and some idea about what might be my payback, my reward for getting this certificate. And by the way, a lot of times, the answer may be, it isn't worth it. Okay. Now, Sandra had done this. She'd met with a number of instructors from Quilt Works, and she had talked to them. She liked them. Conversations that fueled her desire to earn its certificate. And by the time we met, she had taught her first class.
2: I thought I would like to teach, but I had no idea it was that much fun. I mean, the day just flew by. The actual teaching process, the sharing what I've learned, the leaning over someone and saying, okay, now if you just twist it a little bit more like this, you know, that'll come a little bit easier. And then they're just go, Oh, oh, that's right. I mean, I think it's the thrill. It's the thrill of seeing their excitement, the um, women who take the class and are succeeding in what they wanted to do. They hold it up and you can just see on their face. "Oh, I love this. It's perfect. Ah, I'm looking forward to having that in my life, three, four or five times a week.
1: Sandra's looking forward to completing her certificate in the summer of 2016, and she'll start teaching regularly. You know, what really intrigues me about what she's doing is teaching quilting as an unretirement option. I mean, quilting is something she loves. Quilting will bring in an income, and she needs that income. But the combination of doing something she loves and bringing in an income also offers her and her husband a lifestyle they look forward to when he retires from his full-time maintenance job in a couple of years.
2: So my husband and I, I can be teaching and we can bring our camper and I can teach during the day and he can fish. So into retirement, this is what kind of what we were thinking. I have a friend, this is what she does. She's a certified instructor. She gets a four-day teaching job in Arkansas and off they go. And while she teaches... He, does, he fishes and then they get together and in the evening and they spend their evenings together and it works perfectly for them and it will definitely suit my husband's and my style.
1: And this is a naive question, but it seems to me you could quilt for a long time.
2: Yes, you can. And the older instructors, the longer they've been doing it, the more they know and they they all have little secrets. You know, oh, here, I'll tell you this. This will make it so much easier. It's like, oh my gosh, that was worth the price of coming. So yeah, you can quilt indefinitely.
1: I love that Sandra has found work that can be enjoyed and that her skills will improve with age. And there's a theme here. There's a theme to the Unretirement Podcast. Creativity and aging often go together. So as you head into your unretirement, keep this in mind. Your lifetime of creativity, your experiences, your skills will serve you well, especially if you keep on learning and stay engaged. Next up, we'll talk to Barbara Vicar about the education options available to you if you're thinking about refreshing your skills or even reinventing your career in your unretirement. Earlier in 2015, I gave a talk before a class in the master's degree program in the management of technology at the University of Minnesota. I love going into a class and you know interacting with the students. And there I met a student, Hans Anderson, age 72. That's right, 72 years old. He earned his master's degree for $10 of tuition credit thanks to Minnesota's senior citizen education program. Now, that compares to the typical charge of more than $1,800 per credit for the graduate degree. He graduated last May and got a job right away with a high-tech company. Anderson's story is unusual. Certificates will be far more common than master's degrees. Nevertheless, post-secondary education can be invaluable for launching a new career or taking a new job in the second half of life. On the personal finance side, I would include the prospect of earning a good credential into your retirement planning blueprint. And on the economy and society side, I wonder how far the aging of the population will affect higher education. You know, right now, if you've been to a college campus recently like I have, you know, youth dominates. Yeah, there are some 50-plus people in the class, but they're distinct. They're almost an invisible minority, with one exception. Evening and weekend classes aimed at retirees eager to learn about art history, the basic ideas of philosophy, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, the theories of physics, you know, the, the class that you always wanted to take when you were an undergraduate but didn't have the time. Here's what I wondered. Will colleges and universities and other post-secondary institutions adapt to an aging population? Could there come a time when you're on a college campus and you enter a class and there will be everyone in that class from 18 to 80 years old? And those older students, they'll be there to pick up a skill They get the kind of job they want. I call Barbara Vicar. She's a former college president, adult educator, and psychologist. She's now director of the Higher Education Initiative for Encore.org. I asked Barbara, what trends do you see in education for workers in their 50s, 60s, 70s who are interested in getting additional skills?
3: The research suggests, and also the anecdotal information suggests that this demographic is not necessarily mostly concerned with degree, um, with earning degrees, that they are very interested in time and money accessible ways of skill building or making the transition. I do think that there is a need for the kind of advising about how do you move from a career of 25 years 30 years into an encore career at
1: this point in your life. So a lot of what you're doing is, I mean, it strikes me that what you're trying to do is institutionalize a lot of these choices, you know, make it so it's a lot easier for people. But at the moment, we do kind of live in a DIY world. You have to kind of figure this out on your own. So in this DIY world, you know, and, you know, education is such a broad thing, what sort of... what kind of steps would you recommend people to take so that they can be smart about getting some additional education with this encore career uh, notion in their mind?
3: Yep, I think probably the most important um, process to engage in is the one that the those programs that are offering transition pathways um, what they offer to people, and that is it has to be a reflective process of what are my strengths? What have I done? Where are my uh, greatest interests? And how do I now um, leverage those in looking for the next step? And I will say that it is extremely challenging. But without that process of reflection, I think it's very difficult. I would say the second piece, having a peer group, Having people with whom you can, who have either made that transition, who are in the process of transition, I think that's why um, the programs that are getting going that look at transition pathways or a process of making the transition do so in a cohort model. I think that's highly important. Um, And I think also being very realistic about what your needs are financially or socially, emotionally are very important because I think it's, again, it's not a homogeneous group. There are people who need to earn income. There are people who need to uh, make meaning, and there are people who need to do both.
1: So are the community colleges in the forefront of this as you're traveling around the country and you're talking to people? Is the is the epicenter of the community college?
3: So I think that, well, I wouldn't call it the epicenter in the minds of um, the higher ed sector, I would say that they are the epicenter in terms of where the work is actually happening. So, we know that the community colleges have um, implemented the 50-plus initiatives. They are the place where workforce development, you know, they have been the home of workforce development. So, in that sense, yes. And um, I think that much of what is and will happen in the uh, rest of the higher ed sector and the four-year institutions will in some ways take uh, a page out of the book of what the community colleges are doing.
1: So, I mean, do you imagine now just for a moment we'll, we'll, we'll project out 50 years or 30 years out? Do you see that, you know, colleges and universities that it will become the norm that you'll have uh, 18-year-olds and... 25-year-olds and 55-year-olds and 60-year-olds yep. just as, um, and I, I don't want to get my dates too far off, but, you know, there, yep. it probably wasn't that long ago, what, 30 years ago, where yep. in a lot of colleges and universities there weren't that many women in the class.
3: That's right. And now you That's walk into a right. class
1: and, you know, it, you just notice that, you know, everybody's there.
3: It's hard to think out 50 years from now in terms of higher ed, because I actually think what we're seeing is um, a a total change. Sometimes I think it's an implosion of the uh, industry, if you will. I think what's going to be in 50 years is going to look very different than it does today. My uh, hope would be that we would have learning institutions that serve people across a lifespan. If we look at the developmental points across a lifespan in which people need to retool, given that we're not a society where people hold one job for the duration of their adulthood, um, my hope would be that what we would see is exactly that. We would see higher ed serving uh, people from 18-year-olds until you know, the end of life.
1: But you think that, and also you think this, uh, this image or this analogy of women is the right one to keep in mind.
3: I think it is a fabulous one to keep in mind because, and as I do all of the waves of adult students who came to colleges, when they came, there was no, um, uh, I think sense that the college was set up to serve them and to serve them well. I think there was this, um, kind of not knowing how it was going to work out. They were the new idea, the idea that was, in some sense, a radical idea. And as you said, in a very short period of time, they became a majority of adult students on campuses.
1: That was Barbara Vicar, director of the Encore Higher Education Initiative. So what I take away from Barbara is that for most people, 50 plus, and over the next couple of years, getting additional education, additional skills, really means getting a certificate. It's a relatively short time commitment, and the costs are lower than, say, going back to a four-year college or getting some kind of graduate degree. But I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say that higher education is going to change over the next couple of decades, because right now, when you go to a college campus, there's something odd about it. It's a it's a group of 18 to 24-year-olds, and they had this experience isolated from the work world, and then they graduate and they go off into the work world. And what I am excited about is I think that college campus is going to be everyone from 18 to 80. And people are going to go in and out of the workforce, back into educational institutions, back into the workforce much more frequently. It's that cliche that you've heard probably you know, rolled your eyes at, you know, about lifelong learning. I think that's going to become real. And sometimes you're going to come back into an educational institution because you need a particular skill or a certain kind of knowledge that's going to help you with your careers. But, you know, at other times, it's going to be because you really do want to learn about Renaissance Italy or what is string theory that is so hot in physics. And the reason is it gets your mind going, recharges the little gray cells. And that's also good. All right. Now, Speaking of transitions, let's go to a listener question. It's from Susan. And, well, here, let her ask her a question.
0: I am Susan, and I'm from a small town in western Massachusetts. My second half of Life Dilemma revolves around the meaningfulness of work. I've been a nurse since 1976 and a nurse practitioner since 1982. I left my school health center job a year and a half ago um, at age 60, and within six months I felt guilty and uncomfortable not working I began working part-time at an inner-city family planning agency. My husband is a nephrologist, a kidney doctor, who retired two months ago at age 67. It's difficult to have skill sets that are much needed in our society and just put them in a box and walk away from our careers. But but, uh, I'm not sure what to do next. What if I'm tired and I just don't want to take care of people anymore? What if my husband and I are both weary of a broken healthcare system that's a torment to be part of every day? My first choice would be to work outdoors in nature, doing something related to the environment or biological research, which is also meaningful work, of course, but I have no skills there and I don't have much to offer but my time and a willingness to learn. I need permission, I think, to leave the first career behind. That's my dilemma.
1: Susan, you don't need my permission, but since you asked for it, yes, you have permission to stop being a nurse. But you're highly skilled, you're educated. You have interests. So what I would do, take a sabbatical. You know, if you think about the term retirement, for many people, and particularly for someone like you, retirement is the wrong word. What people need is to take a sabbatical, a year where... You don't have the deadlines, you're not being a nurse, you're not dealing with emergencies, but you're dealing with all the other things maybe travel, maybe doing some volunteer work, spending some time with your friends, exploring, going to the movies that you never went to or the museums that you don't have time to go to. But take a sabbatical, clear your mind. But then I would do two things. One, Have a lot of informational interviews with people who know you, have known you for a long period of time, that they're doing something that you think is interesting, something you might want to do, and have an informational interview with them over the course of year. But remember, you're on a sabbatical. There's no rush. There's no hurry. But have conversations with them about, well, do you think I could do what you're doing? Or is there an opportunity in the organization that you're working in that might fit for me? Or what do you think? I would be good at doing that. The other thing that I would do is volunteer. If you think about volunteering, it's a way of testing out an organization that's involved in something, a cause, a mission that's really important to you. But that doesn't mean it's the right organization for you. And it might be an animal shelter. It could be dealing with the homeless, Uh, recidivism, a museum museum. A science museum. You know, if if you look at the nonprofit world, it's all from little tiny soup kitchens to science museums to multinational humanitarian behemoths. But by volunteering, you learn about the organization. You learn about the mission. And during your sabbatical, you're doing some good. You have some place to go. You have people to talk to. But what you're really doing is you're exploring what it is that I want to do next. And you're smart. You have an education, you have something to offer, and it's not going to be in nursing, but your skills are going to be transferable. And I think between the networking and the volunteering, you're going to figure out what it is you want to do next. Good luck. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Now, if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, do me a favor. Subscribe, leave a rating and a review. It will help us grow the audience. By the way, speaking of audience, we also got help with this episode from American Public Media's Public Insight Network. To become a news source for APM, go to publicinsightnetwork.org. You've heard the expression, it takes a village. Well, it takes a village to create a podcast. In particular, I want to thank editor Catherine Winter, producer Lauren D, and our boss, our leader, Steve Nelson. I'm Chris Farrell.